This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Okay, today's hot question is on Vancouver's bike lanes. We've become famous for the city-separated bike lanes, including the big battles and fights and debates we had over the bike lanes. That's kind of died down a bit. New poll out from Research Company Poll says 69% of Vancouver residents support the separated bike lanes in the city. Let's see. Let's do a little twitter poll here and see if we get uh different numbers here so would you say uh, what would you say about vancouver's bike lanes would you say let's have more of them or would you say no no there's too many or would you say it's just about the right amount right now here's where you can vote on this today at cknw on twitter you'll find the hot question of the day there at CKNW on Twitter. Give me a follow while you're there, please, at Mike Smith News on Twitter. S-M-Y-T-H, at Mike Smith News on Twitter. Give me a call on the buzz line. Leave me a voicemail on that one today. What do you think about the city's bike lanes? Do you like them, hate them, just right? 604-331-2899 is the number. As promised now, let's talk about ride-hailing, lack thereof in the city of Surrey and the rest of the Metro Vancouver region. We're told that it's coming by the end of this year, which is only days away now, I'm going to believe it when I see it. Now, the latest on this is that yesterday, a rare injection of common sense here from Metro Vancouver, Metro mayors voting on a regional business license for ride-sharing companies. What we'd been seeing emerging prior to this was this patchwork of municipal license requirements. So you need a different license in every city. It's ridiculous for these ride-hailing companies that are going to be allowed to operate across the whole metro area. Yesterday, TransLink mayors voting, no, no, let's go for a regional business license. I was astonished that there's some uh, common sense uh, going on for a change on this file. That passed unanimously, except for one guy, Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum. He was the only guy who voted against this idea. Now, why did he vote against it? He says... It's because people in Surrey don't want ride hailing. Have a listen. What is he talking about? What's he smoking? Like, there have been lots of polls done, surveys done to show a huge majority of people in the city want these services. Why would the mayor say something like that? Let's check in with Linda Annis now, Surrey City Councillor. She's with the Surrey First Party. Councillor, thanks for coming on. My pleasure, Mike. What do you think about what the mayor said there? It's astonishing. I'm not sure who he's talking to. Clearly, the residents of Surrey want ride hailing, and they want it now. Transportation throughout Surrey is, is limited at best. This is a great opportunity for people to use and have an additional service for getting transportation. And clearly, we need to be able to move through other municipalities. I absolutely applaud the other mayors uh, for their decision yesterday. I think it's the right decision, and I hope we'll get on with it very quickly. Yeah, how do you feel about the, the mayor of, of your city in Surrey there, Doug McCallum, is the only mayor who voted against this uh, metro-wide license? I think clearly this is a bad decision that the mayor has made. Uh, we need to have the mayors working collaboratively to get this moving forward and get it moving forward now. Okay, when you say, uh, when the mayor says a large number of people in the city don't want ride-hailing and you're wondering who he's talking to, I think he's probably clearly talking to the taxi companies, isn't he? He seems to be 
he, he seems to be controlled by the taxi company some way. Well, we weren't elected by the taxi companies. We were elected by the residents of Surrey, and that's who we all serve. And if they're asking for ride-hailing and they're asking for it regionally, that's what we need to be delivering. Okay, why do you think that ride-hailing would be good for the city? Well, we do not have enough uh, transportation options in Surrey for start. Uh, we don't have enough buses. Uh, there aren't enough taxi drivers. We need to be building a whole transportation strategy, and ride-hailing is clearly a really good option. And I think, you know, if I had a young daughter or son, they're coming home, and if they are able to get a bus, you want to be able to have them to have the opportunity to be able to take or, or to get uh, ride-hailing service from the bus stop to their home. There's a fair different a distance, I should say, between bus stops, uh, where there even is bus stops, and uh, we need to have options. I think the city of Surrey, south of the Fraser, generally is underserved uh, by transit services. It's been unfair. I mean, the city of Surrey just always seems to get kind of the short end of the stick on this thing, and I think it's one of the reasons why a lot of people in the city clearly would like another option, as you outlined, in order to get around. And by the way, it's, it, we've waited so long for these services and we talk about it so much that it's almost like you think like, oh, it's going to be some panacea or the streets are going to be paved with gold if we get these services. I mean, these are just normal services that are available in other cities. You know, it's not like it's going to change anyone's life overnight. It's just like, give me some give me some basic services that are available in pretty much every other developed city around the world. So. Well- and I think when we all, you know, travel to other cities, when we're on vacation or on business, many, many of us use ride-hailing services, and right. it works extremely well. And when you think about the size of Surrey, I mean, Surrey is as big as Vancouver, Burnaby, and Richmond combined. Clearly, we do not have even a quarter of the transit services that those municipalities have, we have to be looking at every option. We have to be looking at options to get us throughout the lower mainland, uh, not just within Surrey as well. Yeah, yeah. You, you've mentioned that for people who travel outside of British Columbia where these services are freely available. Have you ever used ride hailing in your own travels? Absolutely. I use it regularly and it works so well. Uh, I also use taxis and other yeah. transit systems as well. This service is just a really nice complement to the whole transportation strategy. Sure, it's just another option, right? It's another choice. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Where do you are you confident we're going to get these services because I I've gotten to the point now where I'm going to believe it when I see it. Well, I'm really think the decision that the mayors all made yesterday unanimously with the exception of the mayor from Surrey is an absolute great step forward and I'm very optimistic that it's going to be coming to us very very soon. Okay, speaking to Surrey City Councillor Linda Anna, she disagrees with Mayor Doug McCallum's comments yesterday that a lot of people in the city of Surrey don't want ride-hailing. He voted against a metro-wide license for ride-hailing vehicles, the only mayor in Metro Vancouver to vote against it. Uh, are, do you have any concerns at all about, about ride-hailing coming in? I mean, not everybody is thrilled with the idea. I mean, obviously, the taxi companies don't want the competition, but there's also been concern raised about the potential for traffic gridlock. Uh, if there are too many of these ride-hailing vehicles on the street, we saw a report come out in the last few days about the number of sexual assaults in Uber vehicles, for example, south of the border in the United States. Does any of the, uh, do any of those give you pause for concern? Well, I think a couple of... Uh 
things that I would like to mention. First of all, I do believe that the taxi cabs should be given a level playing field and that they should also be allowed to uh, cross jurisdictional boundaries from municipality to municipality. Is it going to give us gridlock in the city? Absolutely not. To me, it's going to be less cars on the road because I and other people aren't going to be taking their cars. We'll be sharing services. I think it will absolutely help traffic within the cities. Can can Doug McCallum stop these ride-hailing companies from operating in Surrey? I mean, he's even, he's threatened to try and keep them out, but I don't see how he can. Well, that would clearly be a huge mistake on his part if he even tried to do that. I don't believe he has the mandate to do that. This is a uh, uh, service that is being mandated by the province and being controlled by TransLink. So uh, I certainly hope that he doesn't try to, to do that. Councillor, thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks, Mike. Surrey City Councillor Linda Annis there talking about Doug McCallum yesterday and his comments. This election means that getting Brexit done is now the irrefutable, irresistible, unarguable decision of the British people. And with this election, I think we've put an end to all those miserable threats of a second referendum. All right, that's a happy British Prime Minister Boris Johnson there yesterday. yesterday. He rolls to a big majority in the United Kingdom House of Commons. He has a big chance now to do what he said there, get the United Kingdom out of the European Union by the scheduled date of January 31st in the new year. Johnson's call during this election, his campaign slogan was everywhere, Get Brexit done. It provided, proved to be very appealing to a lot of voters, especially in the Labour Party seats, the Red Wall, as they call it in the United Kingdom, all those supposedly safe Labour Party seats, a lot of those red, that Red Wall just crumbled as the Conservatives just rolled, knocked off a whole bunch of Labour MPs and one in some labor strongholds here. A lot of those labor strongholds are places where people voted to leave in the Brexit referendum, too. This was a Brexit election for sure. What happens next, though? Now could we see more delays in the already slow Brexit process? You heard Johnson say there, it's time to get her done, get Brexit done. We'll see. The Labor Party, meanwhile, they'll be looking for a new leader, Jeremy Corbyn is saying he won't lead the party into another election, but not leaving immediately. Some people would like to see him leave sooner after a crushing loss for the Labour Party, especially in some working-class districts of the United Kingdom. Let's check in with Sean Simpson now for some analysis on this. He's the Vice President of Public Affairs at Ipsos, the very fine polling company. Hi, Sean. Very well, thank you. Thanks a lot for coming on. Did the pollsters predict these results? Did you expect a majority? Yeah, well, uh, both in the pre-election polling that we did, we're called Ipsos Mori uh, over in the UK, uh, and the Mori poll is quite accurate. And then also the um, the exit poll that the media consortium uh, conducts uh, was was accurate as well. So no no big surprise uh, here. Uh, a very decisive uh, victory for the Tories. And I think the Prime Minister is going to be a bit of a uh, bull in a china shop uh, heading through to January because he feels like he has a mandate to uh, to get the job done as quickly as possible, sure. and he's probably right. 
Yeah, sure he is. And boy, he's got a big majority there. I think he's got a big mandate. How did he pull it off? How did the how did the Conservative Party take all those labor seats? Mm. Well, I think uh, you know you mentioned in your in your introduction that uh, Jeremy Corbyn was in a difficult place in many of those traditional labor ridings because he was offside on uh, on Brexit, even right. though historically many of those ridings, you know, in, in the north of England, for example, are are uh, very strong uh, labor ridings. Uh, many want to leave the EU and are, are pro-Brexit. And so those people had to decide which was more important to them, their sort of long-standing allegiance to the Labour Party or Brexit. And as you said, this was a Brexit election, uh, almost like a, a, another referendum, uh, if you like. And uh, the voters were very decisive about uh, which way they want to go. What did you think about the conservative campaign as I was watching it here? It was, I thought it was very clever, but, you know, on the surface, some of the stuff that Johnson was doing and the conservatives did look kind of goofy on the surface, like he had that Love Actually themed TV commercial. Uh, I saw him baking cookies one day with a, in an, in an apron that said, get Brexit done. Uh, the other day I saw him driving a bulldozer through a styrofoam wall with a big get Brexit done sign in the front. Look kind of goofy, but man, you talk about a focused message. Yeah, well, and it was all about Brexit, just delivered in, I guess, what we could call in hindsight, clever ways. Yeah. Uh, almost a, uh, you know, a, a populist sentiment, you know, trying to speak to to different people because in order to get a, a majority that uh, that you did get, uh, you need to to unite factions that aren't always united. For example, labor voters uh, in the north, and so I think that sort of wacky looking approach um, meant kind of different strokes for different folks and and yeah. he resonated or spoke to uh, a, a different group of people with, with each one of those and they came together um, you know kind of like in Canada when when, when Mulroney was able to to unite the the, the, the French in Quebec and, and the West you know and, and, and win such a, a significant majority um, politicians need to you know they're always talking about um, uh, is preaching to their base trying to motivate their base but there's there's something to be said about trying to convince some other people to vote for you as well okay sean we just got one minute left here the theme of the election for boris johnson was get brexit done how is he going to get it done and can he get it done yeah I, well I, I think he will um his negotiations with the with the eu um are going to be now backed by a very clear mandate from the people um you know i, I think the eu was playing chicken a little bit ahead of the election because uh, you know they were they were banking on the fact that uh, that the uk voters uh, weren't quite as 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 vehemently um, pro Brexit as they appear uh, to be now. So uh, the EU, I think, has lost some bargaining position. The UK has gained some bargaining position, and I, I think Boris Johnson will be able to uh, to get the job done um, on on the timeline that he sees fit. It's a fascinating election. Thanks for coming on, Sean, to break it down. My pleasure. I appreciate it. That is Sean Simpson. He's the vice president of public affairs for the Ipsos polling company, speaking about the big election yesterday in the United Kingdom. This is Mike Smith filling in for Simi Sarah today. Let's talk now about sexual assault cases in Canada involving adolescent girls aged 12 to 17 years old. These are disturbing cases, to say the least. A brand new report out says the vast majority of these cases are young girls being abused by much older men, often a male family member, the authors of the report say the study explodes the myth of statutory rape among young people. My guest is a co-author of the report, Professor Isabel Grant from the University of BC Law School. Professor Grant, welcome. 
for having me. Thank you for coming on. All right, your report says the findings undermine the statutory rape myth. So let's start with that. What is the definition of statutory rape? Well, the term statutory rape usually refers to um, sexual activity where the complainant was under the age of consent. So the law says that the complainant is incapable of giving consent. And so consent is not an issue, but the complainant's age is an issue. And what we mean by the statutory rape myth is it's sometimes said that these are what one might call technical or formal sexual assaults, but they're not real sexual assaults as we think of that term involving force or coercion. Um, and in fact, what we found is that the vast majority of these cases are what are not formal or technical sexual assaults, but rather real sexual assaults in any way that one could um, understand that term. Right, right. And the, the age of consent is 18? Is it's that for correct? most offenses, it's 16 in Canada. It 16. used to be 14 until 2008. There are a few offenses like child prostitution that have a higher age of consent of 18, but for most offenses, it's 16. Right. So the, I guess the myth of statutory rape, I, I guess maybe in some people's mind, people might imagine two young people, right? Like maybe, I don't know, you have a 15-year-old exactly. girl. that's who, what we wanted to see. Yeah. We wanted to see our young men. In Canada, we have what's called close in age exceptions, so that if the um, potential accused person is within a few years in age of the complainant, uh, he cannot be charged. So we wanted to see, is it young men just outside those exceptions who were being charged? And what we found is overwhelmingly it's much older men who are being charged with these crimes. Right. Okay. Let's, uh, how did you undertake your study? Well, we're limited in our study to looking at uh, cases that have made their way to Canadian courts. We looked at a three-year period from 2014 to 2016 inclusive, from all jurisdictions in Canada. And we put together a database of over 600 judgments from um, everything we could find involving a complainant within this age range. And then we looked at those cases. Now, we acknowledge that this should not be taken as a reflection of what's happening in the world. Um, these are the cases that have made it to court and have gone to verdict or, in some cases, to sentencing. Um, so we're not making statements about what's actually happening in the world. We're making statements about um, what judges are doing with the cases that get to court. Okay, over 600 cases, but sexual assault, of course, a very underreported crime, I guess, for maybe people who feel victims who might feel embarrassment or fear or any other number of reasons. So, Do you think the actual numbers here of sexual assault cases against young girls could be much higher? Oh, I think that's almost certainly the case. Yeah. Uh, we know that very few cases get reported, and then we lose some more cases between the stage of reporting and charges being laid, and then we lose more cases at every stage, so that cases that get to verdict are just a tiny percentage of the cases that are actually happening in the world. Right. We can't comment from our study what that number is, but we know it's considerably higher than the number of cases we found. 
Okay, let's talk a little bit about some of the details in your report. What was the average age of, of the victims here? And did you find like a, a pattern of abuse? Like I imagine if you have a girl who is sexually abused over a, a long period of time, if it's by a family member, that abuse could go on for some time. Um, it's difficult to talk very precisely about the average age of the girl because of what you just said, and that is that very often, particularly with family members, the abuse went over a, a number of years. If we look at if we looked at just um, the sort of more isolated sexual assaults, we found that the average age was around 12 to 13 years of age. Oh. But if we looked at abuse over time, we found that uh, for many girls, this abuse started when they were young children children and continued on into the teen years. We only included them in our study if at some point they were sexually assaulted as a teenager, but for a large number of these girls, the sexual abuse um, began when they were children. Right. We had girls as young as four and six years of age uh, oh, wow. reporting that they were abused at that time. Wow. Almost That's... half of our cases were a male family member as the accused person. Um, And in those cases, particularly fathers, that includes stepfathers, foster fathers, and adoptive fathers, as well as biological fathers, tended to um, often groom these girls from a young age, introducing, you know, sexualized content into their lives in other ways, controlling aspects of their sexuality, how they dressed, whether they were allowed to see boys outside the family. Um, sometimes fathers said this was just sexual education or religious education, but that as the girl got older, um, the abuse became increasingly invasive. Are we talking in some and cases... And one thing I'll say about those yeah. cases, too, is just that the harm to girls was really profound in these cases. We saw that in sentencing cases, you often have what's called a victim impact statement, where the victim gives an account of what the damage has been from the offense in her life. And sexual abuse over time by a family member has devastating impacts on on women. A number of our cases, almost 20% of our cases, were cases that were prosecuted more than 10 years after the sexual abuse ended. Um, which shows you that for many women, this has lifelong consequences. Mm-hmm. What about the conviction rates in these cases? Uh, what, these perpetrators, did they, did they go to jail? What happens to these abusers? Um, again, that varies depending on, we looked at how that varied depending on the relationship to the complainant. We found the highest conviction rate was for strangers. So someone who had never met the complainant had no, the complainant didn't know this person. Um, the highest conviction rate remained with that group and also the highest sentences went to strangers. We looked at um, family members, for example, father figures had a considerably lower conviction rate. Um, roughly 65% of the cases that we looked at involved convictions. Um, that differed somewhat based on who, who the accused was. Um, the sentences overall, I think it's fair to say that considerable sentences were being given for many of these cases. But again, we saw that strangers received the highest sentences, even though when you were looking at abuse by a family member, it often continued over a number of years, which one would think would make it a more serious offense than a one-time offense. Yeah. So... We saw some problems with sentencing, but in general, 
the majority of our the accused in our study were sentenced to penitentiary time, which means a sentence of two years or more. Where do we go with this report, do you think? Do you think it should lead to any changes, in your opinion? Do we need tougher laws, better better court uh, court system to deal with it, better protection for kids? What do you think should be the priority? I mean, I think we need all of the above. One of the things that we wanted to do in this report is is shine a light on the fact that you know, we've had a lot of attention with the Me Too movement on on sexual assault and, and violence against women. But one institution that has remained, that we haven't really talked about much in the context of Me Too is the family. And I think our results tell us that we have to do a lot more um, to protect girls within the family because almost half of these cases were a male family member and often this abuse went on for a long period of time. So one of the things we wanted to do is get people realizing that the family is an institution that's deeply implicated in, in sexual assault, particularly for this group of girls. But also we're moving on to look at um, other age groups and, and in fact the family is deeply implicated in sexual assault at every potential age wow. range. Really important research. Thanks for coming on today to talk about it. Thanks again for having me. I appreciate it a lot. That is Professor Isabel Grant from the University of BC Law School. Let's talk about some bad news in the Vancouver film and TV industry now. Moving Picture Company, it's a major animation studio, worked on the new Lion King movie, The Martian, a lot of other big projects, won an Academy Award. They've shut down. Their Vancouver operations. This was a booming business. They'd grown to hundreds of animation artists working there at the studio in Yale Town. It's been shuttered up now with a security guard outside. Why did they shut down? Let's check in with Ian Bailey now, the very fine reporter at the BC Bureau of the Globe and Mail in Vancouver. Hi, Ian. Hey, Mike. How you doing, man? I'm, I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for coming on. Really good story on this in the Globe and Mail today. Um, what what happened? Well, first of all, how many people were working down there? Well, Mike, that appears to be a bit of a mystery. Um, the, the, the company itself has, uh, you know, is, is gone invisible. The company is not responding to uh, media queries either in BC or across the country, or almost around the world. I reached out across all parts to try and get some comments. So there's no clear word on how many employees were in the operation at this point. We know that in the past, as many as 800 employees have been working here, and one would wow. assume that the numbers would go down or fluctuate with the projects that the company was taking on. Yeah, I mean, we're probably talking hundreds of people here have been Absolutely, out of work, though. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes, exactly. The, the good news is, I mean, uh, there is, still is a boom in the sector. There are a number of other companies, uh, at least 10 of whom have joined a career fair to uh, help you know, get some of these MPC uh, employees employed. So there are other jobs in BC, in Vancouver, Industrial Light and Magic, which, for example, which would have worked on the new Star Wars film, The Rise of uh, uh, Skywalker, and, and other films as well. Okay, this is a great business for the city of Vancouver. Employs a lot of people, and it, they're they're good jobs. Uh, when you see a company like this though shut down, it's concerning because it's not like this was some little small boutique operation. I mean, this is a big studio. 
That's right. It's a big studio doing big work on big films, you know, the, the films that sort of dominate our cinemas today. And so it's a little bit surprising that they, they, they went out of, uh, they, they've shut down in Vancouver. There's been a letter from management floating around, as pointed out in my story, that talks about uh, external market pressures in Vancouver and more attractive opportunities in the other locations have created a challenging environment for us to sustain the studio. And that's got to be worrying for the BC government, which is obviously trying to nurture this industry. I mean, it's, you know, we've seen the premier on uh, production sets and talking about the production sector. Right. So, th- so that's got to sort of raise some worries. Of course, at this point, uh, moving picture is yet to uh, elaborate on exactly what they meant by that and whether it's something that the provincial government, even actually the municipal government, and then certainly uh, the industry should be looking to correct or deal with. Okay, it'd be nice to see this company uh, pop its head up here and, and do some explaining about why they're shutting down, because this is a lot of people out of work, and this is a big employer uh, in this business here. And that that statement that you just mentioned, Ian, this letter uh, circulated to staff, and you got a hold of a copy of it, external market pressures in Vancouver, one of the problems. What does that mean? It, it, it's unclear. It could mean uh, they're concerned about the state of uh, taxes. It could mean, um, you know, if, if there are so many companies working, maybe the competition among companies for this work was such that uh, this company decided they couldn't compete. I mean, as I understand it, you have a Star Wars movie or a Lion King or a, a Batman film coming out and uh, various operators, uh, companies like this will go to the studios or the producers and bid for the individual images, the moving images, the visual effects and such in these films, and obviously the competition is to do it at the best price, and a price that uh, provides a profit that's sustainable to the bidder, but it's also reasonable to the producer, and perhaps uh, in that competition, there were challenges for this company, given the, the many companies, the, the, the hundreds of talented workers in Vancouver who are doing this work. Okay, speaking to Globe and Mail reporter Ian Bailey about Moving Picture Company, the animation studio in Vancouver that is shut down here. It's interesting, Ian, that in the letter that you obtained, it also talks about the company indicating more attractive opportunities in other locations outside of Vancouver. Like the competition you mentioned, there's also competition among cities around the world to attract these companies because... Cities love these employ these these this sector. They want these companies to come in and employ people in a, in a clean business here with a lot of prestige as well. So there's like competition to attract these companies, yeah, and that's going to be a little. Yeah, go ahead. No, I, I was in Toronto recently and uh, walking around downtown Toronto, and there was a massive set for a Netflix series, uh, uh, built up of a street in Japan, a huge set. Uh, and it was just uh, that I happened to observe uh, one night uh, walking around in Toronto. And just a reminder that this kind of production is going on in other major Canadian centers in Toronto and Montreal, but it's also happening around the world, and uh, various state governments and provincial governments are offering tax incentives and other incentives to try and attract these jobs. And so if you are a producer, whether you're shooting a, a live action or you're doing your visual effects or animation, you're looking around the world for jurisdictions that can offer you know, incentives, tax breaks, that you'll factor into your budgets and calculations about whether you can, um, whether you can uh, do the project in a cost-effective manner. Right, right. So, yeah, these uh, centers, we compete against other cities to try and attract these, uh, these biz- this business here. And other provinces and states, mostly, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, well, we'd been doing a pretty good job in BC. Like we got a booming sector here in Vancouver and British Columbia. But if this company's indicating that maybe the, there's greener pastures elsewhere, what that like you say, that's got to be a troubling message to this government. Yes, um, I, I can't take credit for it. Brenda Bailey of DigiBC, um, who's uh, quoted in the story uh, that, that the Globe brand spoke um, of the, the concern about a canary in the coal mine, which is the sense that uh, I suppose if you pick apart that analogy, the sense that you know it, 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 we should try, or the industry, or the government, or, or other parties should try and understand what exactly happened here so they can look for a corrective to make sure it doesn't spread or to make sure that other companies aren't putting security guards at their front doors and uh, um, declaring that the business is out of work and, and people are on the street looking for, for employment. I mean, BC is having a is going through a boom. I can remember times in past years when it definitely wasn't a boom, but certainly right yeah. now there's a massive boom. And uh, I suppose uh, parties want that boom to continue. Yeah, that's the good news, I guess, is this is a pretty big studio that shut down here, but we still got a lot of productions going on in the city, right? What's going on in the in the sector right now? Well, it's it's hard, and now it's it's interesting. This in Vancouver, I can't I can't speak for Victoria, for example, but in Vancouver, this is Christmas, so many TV series would have tape would be on their Christmas break. But uh, our bureau is beside the Vancouver Art Gallery, and it's a rare day after the Christmas break when you don't walk by and see TV series shooting there, um, feature films shooting there. And in other parts of central Vancouver, it's a rare, it's a routine now. It's as routine as uh, seeing uh, workers paving, you know, filling potholes to see production. Some of the massive unwork in the streets of our city, the Surrey City Hall, massively popular location for TV and feature films in other parts of the Lower Mainland. So it's a booming time. There was news recently that the third Jurassic World film will be shooting in uh, British Columbia, presumably in Vancouver, next year, early next year. Uh, Countless TV series, the Arrowverse uh, collection of shows, The Flash, Supergirl, Batwoman now, all regular part of the scenery in Vancouver. Uh, so yeah, it's a booming time right now in the production sector in this uh, in this province. Okay, well that's the good news. We hope that remains the case going forward here, but we still have the loss of this one particular production studio in Vancouver, which is troubling. And I know you reached out to the BC government about it. What are they telling you? Well, Lisa Bear, um, in a statement from her ministry, at least a statement from the minister, the culture minister, the tourism minister, you know, said she was disappointed to see the company go, but uh, looked at the bright side, which is that it's still a booming industry and many thousands of uh, British Columbians employed and a lot of money uh, coming into the province um, for these productions, uh, productions in TV, animation, video games, feature films and such. Okay, BC still offers tax breaks, right? I know they've they've offered some attractive incentives to get here. Is there any fear in the industry that maybe some of these tax breaks or credits might be taken off the table? Uh, Miss Bailey spoke, um, no relation, by the way, spoke of a, um, a concern in the industry about this possibility. I've um, not had any sense that this was going to happen. You, you may recall that some time ago, uh, former finance minister Mike DeYoung made some adjustments to tax breaks for this sector. It caused a lot of concern in the industry, but as I recall, the, the consultative manner in which Mr. DeYoung brought in these uh, adjustments to tax breaks were widely praised by the industry, and so the the concern and the possibility of a, 
detrimental result sort of just passed by and the boom went on, continuing on to this day. But there's no guarantee that this will go on forever. Some people are saying that, um, you know, a change in the tax breaks, a change in the dollar could uh, take the, the boom out of the boom. Others are saying that, frankly, there are so many workers, so many sound stages, so much expertise now in British Columbia that it's it's clinched and uh, confirmed and sort of uh, created something that's um, going to go on for the foreseeable future for quite some time. Right. Also worth noting, of course, the boom in streaming product, Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, Apple, uh, all of these uh, streaming services have shot productions in British Columbia, so that may keep the boom going literally forever. Yeah, I mean, we've become a center of excellence here for sure with a, with a real good reputation uh, in the industry. With these hundreds of people out of work, though, at this particular studio that is shut down, Ian, what happens to them? I mean, is the, is the sector strong enough that they can just walk out the door and get another job at another studio? Well, my God, to be honest, I, I don't know definitively the answer to that question. I, I know there are a lot of companies doing this work in Vancouver at this time. Uh, yeah. What about that, that job uh, fair you mentioned? What's going on with the job fair? Well, we were informed that uh, DigiBC, working with another organization, the Visual Effects Alliance, the, the Animation and Visual Effects Alliance of BC, apparently those two parties, in pretty short order, pulled together and pulled uh, 10 other similar studios in for a, uh, uh, a job fair on December 17th, where okay. presumably they will be uh, um, offering or, or sort of kicking the tires, talking to laid-off workers to see if they could fit into their operations. And I guess... You know, later this month, we'll see how that exercise works out. I guess there is a sense that there is work for these um, these laid-off employees. And certainly, you know, it, given the nature of this industry, it might be interesting early next year to look back and see how things went for these workers. Ian, good job in the story. Thanks for coming on. Not at all, Mike. All the best for the holidays. Thank you. Same to you. That's Ian Bailey. He's a reporter for the Globe and Mail. Speaking of a ride-hailing in the city of Surrey, McCallum was the only Metro Vancouver mayor yesterday who voted against a regional business license for ride-sharing companies. And I thought this was a common-sense approach to ride-hailing in the region. One operating business license for the whole region. Mayor McCallum, the only one to vote against it. And as you heard him say there, he says a large amount of people in the city of Surrey don't want ride hailing. Let's check in with the Surrey City Councilor now and get her take on it. Allison Patton, very pleased to welcome her. Hi, Councilor. Oh, hi there. How are you doing? I'm great, Councilor. Thank you very much for coming on. You are part of uh, Mayor McCallum's Safe Surrey Coalition down there at Surrey City Hall, part of the governing majority down there. Do you agree with what the mayor says? Well, the thing is, um, we were in our campaign, that was. Um, uh, a small part of it, it wasn't a large part, but we, we have spoken on that topic since the campaign, and our position hasn't changed. Um, for myself, I mean, I, um, I'm i always looking at how to get people out of cars. So um, I'm always for um, the, the, our main, one of our main pillars, which was the SkyChain. So that's what I'm really happy about, that we're getting SkyChain. And I want to get more and more people out of cars or sharing cars or whatever they have to do but i don't want congestion because our streets in surrey are really crowded with cars and it's driving a lot of us crazy okay you want to do you want to keep ride hailing out of surrey well the thing is i mean i don't i don't have i've i'm on the coalition i support the coalition's point of view i'm not it's not one of my top passion topics that i 
uh, you know, get really riled up over, but congestion riles me up. So I'm, um, I've just been, um, it looks like put on the climate action committee for the Metro board. So I um, am trying to support and promote us getting greener as much as we can. So however we can do that, I'm in for it. If it's, okay. So, whatever that looks like but um i'm not sure ride hailing is going to make that better but um it might make other things better for some people you, i i'm worried very in a very very big way about congestion so i yeah. don't think that's going to help congestion at all okay do you agree with the mayor when he said that a large number of people and a large amount of people in surrey don't want ride hailing well, the thing is, I haven't really studied the amount of people who want it. I mean, in my um, South Surrey, uh, where I hang out in South Surrey, the parents, um, some of the parents at their parties, and uh, um, they're worrying about their teenagers at parties. So mainly that's what I've heard is after-party rides are, is what they're looking for, um, the people who are looking for that. and now, well, um, wouldn't, well, wouldn't ride-hailing help with that? Um, it could, and I think that similar to, um, and I could be wrong, but I believe um, the Surrey Board of Trade head, uh, Anita Huberman, and our mayor agreed on one point, which is uh, a level playing field. So I think that's critical um, to focus on, no matter what happens, is that we have a level playing field. Yeah, but Councillor, there have been lots, there's lots of evidence that a big majority of Surrey residents, your constituents, want these services they're commonplace in other developed cities around the yeah. entire planet there was a, yeah. a poll done that showed about 78 percent of surrey residents want ride hailing then you got the mayor comes out and he says people don't want it i mean what's he talking about he sees he seems completely out of touch with reality <laughs> really is that what you think oh my goodness well do you well, think do you think people in surrey don't want ride hailing you got to be kidding me you are entitled to your opinion, aren't you? Well, what's yours? Well, I, do, I don't agree with you. I, I don't think he's at all in touch with reality. Um, and I, I'm i on his coalition, so, you know, I spend a lot of time talking with him. Oh, okay, but he's also he's also said he's going to try and keep ride-hailing out of Surrey. He doesn't even have the authority to do that. So there you go. I think you've answered your own question. But I, um, so, but I still want to focus on, on my end, the congestion. So if we can make it a level playing field, if we can reduce congestion, th these are my focuses. Okay, what did you think about the mayor and his refusal to vote for a Metro Vancouver-wide operating license for, for ride-hailing? He was the only mayor out of all the Metro mayors there in the TransLink Mayor's Council to vote against this common-sense idea. Do you agree with him? Well, the thing I appreciate about our mayor is he stands for what he believes in and he doesn't change his tune ever for things that he firmly believes in. And I appreciate someone who promises something and sticks to what he promises. Oh, okay. Do you think he, I get the feeling though, he's, he's just kind of doing what the taxi companies want him to do. Well, it sounds like you get a lot of feelings, but I mean, that's really, you're going to have to research that a bit more, I think, because a feeling, as we, as I've been told many times, because I have lots of feelings, I've been told a feeling doesn't mean much. Okay, well, that opinion poll that I mentioned earlier, Councillor, said that 78% of Surrey residents want ride-hailing in the city, uh -huh. and 90% of respondents to a survey from the Surrey Board of Trade said they strongly want ride-hailing. 
<laughs> so the, I mean, the, the mayor is mayor is out of touch with the, your own constituents. Well, but remember, if you're a scientist like I am, uh, you have to look at the source of the data. You have to really study the, the statistics. And I would imagine you haven't done that because um, I can guarantee you that the Board of Trade Research uh, may not be representative of all constituents in Surrey. I can tell you that much. Okay. May not. Just to be clear, may not. But we both have to do our research on that one and find out the details. Well, I, you know, we've been researching this stuff for years. I mean, people have been asking for these services for seven years, going on eight years now, and we but still I, don't get it because the politicians like Doug McCallum keep putting roadblocks up for it. Well, it's not. It's okay if you don't like Doug McCallum. That's not a problem. The thing is, like London, it. England, London, England, and New York are actually having some challenges with their ride-hailing services. So I'm not sure if you've researched that part of it. And what in New York, one of the biggest issues is congestion. Yeah, but this isn't New York. I mean, this is the city of Surrey where people are underserved by transit and they're looking for another option to get around. Do you live in Surrey? No. Well, then you don't know what it's like to drive Surrey all the time. And the number one issue that I keep hearing is congestion in Surrey. Congestion over way more. I hear congestion issues way more than I hear an issue about ride hailing. Way more, like 10 to 1 congestion is driving us right. crazy i have to go from south Surrey to city hall which i love doing completely but the congestion is insane to do it all right counselor i appreciate you coming on thank you very much my pleasure i'd love to talk to you another time on any topic take care you have bet. a wonderful friday bye thank you bye-bye that is allison Patton, surrey city councillor there all right, welcome back. Mike Smith in for Semi. Let's talk about the B.C. government now taking extraordinary actions here on some nursing homes in British Columbia. This is number three now. The B.C. government stepped in to take over management of three uh, for-profit seniors care homes in the province. Uh, the latest one is the Selkirk Seniors Village in Victoria. These are homes that are run by the Retirement Concepts uh, chain of nursing homes let's talk about this now with mike old he's a coordinator of policy and planning for the hospital employees union mike thanks for coming on thanks mike good afternoon thanks a lot for doing this there's been a lot of complaints about uh seniors care this, qu this quality of care in these uh, nursing homes what's the problem here at these places well these are really extraordinary times you know in just under 11 weeks three different retirement concepts care homes on the island have been taken under the direct administration of the Vancouver Island Health Authority. At two of those homes, the Health Authority has actually had to send in its own staff to support the care at those sites in order for seniors to be safe. It, it's an extraordinary and unprecedented problem, and it speaks to a huge recruitment and retention problem we're having across the long-term care sector, where these care homes cannot find enough care aids and other staff to look after seniors. It's a problem we really have to deal with. Yeah, so they're, what, understaffed? They're, they're really understaffed, and uh, the move by the Island Health Authority to actually send in its own care staff to two of these homes is absolutely unprecedented. Okay, what are some of the specific problems in the homes? Like, have there been complaints about the quality of care? So at uh, three of the homes on Vancouver Island, there had been a number of uh, complaints that were made by both staff and uh, resident families 
to licensing authorities with the health authority. Um, because of those complaints, there was uh, sort of a heightened um, oversight of the facilities by licensing officials. And at the end of that process, the medical health officers for the regions involved recommended to the uh, health authority board that they be taken under administration because the care problems were so severe. What kind of care problems have there been? There's been a lot of problems. I mean, uh, the health officers have identified short staffing as the main cause of the problems, but it's uh, issues around nutrition, wound care. Our members tell us that they're having to make decisions every day about uh, which personal care needs of residents to take care of and which they'll have to put off. It's about whether they can get people out of bed and to the dining room. You know, for our members, this is uh, causing a lot of physical and mental stress and it's a, it, they're having a moral crisis. They have to make decisions every day about what kind of care to deliver and what kind of care to put off. Okay, I'm speaking to Mike Old from the Hospital Employees Union here about this uh, very unprecedented situation with the B.C. government stepping in to take over management of these retirement concepts, uh, care homes, three of them now. The company involved here has put out a statement, Mike, saying that, essentially saying it's a staffing challenge, as you just said. They say the, the compliance issues are largely related to staffing challenges. Uh, the company says here in a statement, uh, the impact it was having on us, we are, it speaks to the staffing crisis that is impacting our sector. The impact it's having on us as the largest care provider in the province will continue to work with the administrator and other authorities here on recruitment and staffing. This is a company that had been bought out by a Chinese parent company right in China. And I know the, the union had, a, had, had sounded the alarm over that. Can you tell me about that? Uh, sure. So in 2017, the federal government had an application from a company called Anbang Insurance through its, uh, through its holding company in Canada to purchase the retirement care home chain. Um, and, uh, you know, at the time, our union and many others raised the alarm about uh, what this would mean for the future of seniors' care in British Columbia. We were particularly concerned about, um, you know, the financial health of the company and whether the the assets would be put up for sale or liquidated or put to another use. Um, those were our main concerns. But, you know, kind of fast-forwarding to the, you know, future, um, the situation we're facing now is... Uh, is at the retirement concept sites, but it's a problem that's being experienced across the whole long-term care system. We have a situation today where wages and working conditions in long-term care are all over the map. 20 years ago, if you worked as a care aide in a hospital, say Nanaimo Regional General, or worked at Nanaimo Seniors Village down the street, you were paid the same and you earned the same benefits. There was a level playing field for working and caring conditions in the sector. Um, the BC Liberals changed a lot of things. They encouraged contracting out. They found other ways for employers to exclude themselves from the master agreement. And today we have wages and working conditions that are all over the map. And that's what's fueling the recruitment and retention crisis at retirement concepts and other long-term care facilities. Okay, Mike, we just got about a minute left here. The, co the company in this statement also says, quote, we acknowledge that wage parity is a factor in our ability to recruit and maintain staff. We're working to close the, that gap, unquote. I'm, I'm sure the union is, likes to hear that. Is one of the problems here, if these workers are underpaid, like if they get hired at these places and sometimes they quit and just leave? 
they'll uh, well they'll work at these places and they very much want to do a good job and look after the seniors but uh you know they also have to feed their families and if there's a better paying job elsewhere they'll go and take it the irony here is that the workers who are being sent in from the health authority are working side by side with other care aides who are being paid several dollars an hour less and i think that underlines the problem here we need level playing field for wages and working conditions in the sector that's good for workers and that's better for care in these facilities mike we continue to follow this closely here it's a troubling story thanks a lot for coming on really appreciate the time mike okay you bet that is mike old the hospital employees union and talking about the government this is very unusual here the government stepping in to effectively take over management of three of these nursing homes uh, where there's been complaint about the quality of care there in those homes. We continue to follow that one closely for you. He's been a fixture outside of Vernon store for the past eight years. The inflatable snowman in downtown Vernon. The 12-foot-high, blow-up, frosty the snowman has been a Christmas tradition, but now... The Grinch is down at City Hall, says it's got to go. Global News, Janet Brown, now senior reporter, tells us about the situation. has got the whole town talking. Hiya, Janet. You better believe it, Mike. Good afternoon. Yeah, this has definitely got the whole town in Vernon talking. This is a big blow-up, frosty the snowman that's been out in front of the Teach and Learn store in downtown Vernon for the last eight years. The owner, Linella Henke, says yesterday after Frosty had been out on the sidewalk for the last two weeks, two bylaws officers came along and told her that Frosty had to go. She picks up the story, Mike. Yeah, he's about 12 feet long and we always put out lots of inflatables outside our business, but most of them are on our cement. But when it goes onto this, we have a 12-foot snowman, I should say, and we attach it to the pole outside on the sidewalk, which we have really wide sidewalks outside our store. We've done it for the last eight years. He's been up there for a couple of weeks, and yesterday Milo came by and told us we had to take it down. So because did you? City property. We so, did when we closed yesterday. Hmm. So where do things stand now? I understand maybe some city councillors may be getting involved in this, or what's yes. happening? Two city councillors have been involved Yesterday, I have not heard from either of them this morning. So I'm just waiting to find out what they're going to do. It's been okay to do this in previous years. What has changed? Exactly. So that's what my whole issue was, is why. So two bylaw officers came by, first of all, yesterday and told us that it was too close to the parking meter, that people couldn't plug the meter. So we took a tape measure out there and we measured it. And there's a good three feet from this um, frosty to where the meter is to be plugged. So they felt that that wasn't enough space for people to put money into the meter to plug it in the three feet. So we said we would take him down. And so now they're saying because it's on city property that we need to buy a permit to go on there. So yesterday I said, that's fine. Tell me how much the permit is. I'll pay for the permit and do it. Then they called back yesterday and said there's no such permit. So we have Frosty down and we have a lot of sad kids. Okay. You know, as I was listening to that, Janet, I was just waiting for when is the money coming in here? Where where am I going to hear a demand for some kind of permit or cash from the city? And there it was right at the end. <laughs> and we have spoken to the city, Mike. Uh, she is Christy Poirier. She says there was some miscommunication yesterday, Mike. Oh. Uh, apparently it has nothing to do with uh, putting Frosty near the parking meter, but it has everything to do, apparently, that Frosty is a tripping hazard. Here's oh. what she has to say. 
Yesterday, it was brought to bylaw enforcement's attention that um, there was a large inflatable snowman on the sidewalk on a downtown sidewalk, and there were some safety concerns in regards to the placement and setup of it. Specifically, um, there was a, a tripping hazard with the location, and so unfortunately, there there was a little bit of miscommunication yesterday, and there is a uh, sidewalk use permit that is required as per city policy. So today we do have uh, bylaw officers that are working with the owner to try and get those proper permits in place, identify a safe location, and hopefully we'll see him return. Okay, so there are permits that she could purchase, and but yes. at the same time, she's going to need to move the Frosty by the sounds of it? They're, they're going to be working with the store owner to make sure that uh, if the snowman is able to return, that it's in a safe location. Why was it able to be there for the previous eight years and now there's an issue this year? Unfortunately, I'm not able to speak to that because I don't know what the specific location was in prior years to compared to this year. So it's it's not something I'd be able to comment on because I don't have the uh, the information. She says it's always been in the same location. Like I said, I, I'm not able to comment on it because I don't know. I, this is my first year in Vernon, so I'm not able to speak to the, the specific location of it. So if she buys the permit and moves the inflatable, everything should be okay by the sounds of it? We're hoping so, absolutely. Okay. Are you, are you surprised that this has taken on sort of a life of its own, this story? Uh, it, it happened very quickly. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, and these are things that happen, and so we work through them. And uh, like I said, our bylaw officers are working with them today to try and get it all sorted out. Don't they got better things to do in Vernon than taking down inflatable snowmen <laughs> on the sidewalk? Oh, my goodness. Oh, dear. And you know what? It it doesn't end there, Mike. Um, okay. The store owner told me she's being inundated with phone calls from people who look forward to seeing this Frosty in front of her shop every year. And in fact, apparently... A daycare is mobilizing as we speak, Mike, that if the Frosty is not returned, the class of daycare kids is going to be marching downtown and holding a little protest of their own outside this teach and learn store. So, yeah, there there could be another shoe to drop in all of this. But, you know, I, I would imagine now that this story is sort of picking up traction and going province-wide that, you know, I think the city will be trying to sort it out before the end of the day. That's just, just my guess. It'd be just like the real Frosty the Snowman when he went with the kids, marching with the kids downtown, right, with the traffic cop and everything. <laughs> yeah, this is going to mobilize these kids here. This is great. I was taking a look at the photos online of this uh, inflatable snowman, and when I first heard, okay, a 12-foot inflatable snowman on, on a sidewalk, and maybe I can understand how that might be a hazard, but like your first guest there, as you, the store owner that said, they got real wide sidewalks in Vernon. So you take a look at the photo, and it doesn't look like there's, I mean, there's lots of room for people to go around the Frosty the Snowman here. Yeah, it would appear that way. But, you know, these yeah. blow-ups, they, they need power, and you have power cords going across a sidewalk. So mm. I, I know they have these covers that... That, that protect those wires and that sort of thing. But, you know, maybe it is a tripping hazard for, for some people, maybe for walkers, for canes, and that okay. sort of thing. But, you know, hopefully they can work something out, I would imagine. Maybe if they move the Frosty closer to the business and not have the wires across the sidewalk, perhaps. Um, you know, let, let's hope Frosty's not deflated permanently, Mike, and hopefully they find a solution by the end of the day today. Okay, good job in that one, Janet. We continue to follow that one with interest. Thanks for coming on. <laughs> Thank you.
Global News Senior Reporter Janet Brown. It's been a bittersweet day here at CKNW with a lot of tears shed around the station today. The final day for John McComb as he signed off for the last time on his morning show here on CKNW. Everyone's happy for John heading into retirement, but it was kind of sad too. After 36 years with the station, 50 years in broadcasting, John signed off for the final time this morning. Here's how it sounded on the CKNW airwaves today. And so it comes down to this, the final few moments of the final John McComb show on CKNW. I remember the first words I ever uttered on the radio. It was in June of 1970. I had just turned 17 years old. I sat in a tiny studio, hardly bigger than a kitchen pantry, on the second floor of a dusty, broken-down, old cockroach-infested building in downtown Tucson, Arizona. With a shaking hand, I cracked open a live radio mic for the first time and through a set of tinny, worn-out headphones, heard myself croak the station ID. This is KWFM 92.9 in Tucson, Arizona. I was petrified, but I was in heaven. My childhood dreams had come true. I was making $1.60 an hour as the new overnight guy on one of the first progressive rock stations in the U.S. Thankfully, the nerves settled a bit, and the pay increased, and I was on my way. I was a professional broadcaster. In those early moments, I could not have conceived of a day like today, surrounded by family, friends, and colleagues celebrating retirement after a run of half a century, 36 years at one station with an iconic set of call letters, CKNW. I came to NW from Montreal in 1980, where I was the morning news anchor on CJAD Radio, a station not unlike this one. I was young, full of piss and vinegar, and thought I knew pretty much all there was to know about radio news. But that's when I ran into the likes of the old pros, like our news director, Warren Barker, John McKittrick, George Garrett, and John Ashbridge. They didn't care where I'd been or what I'd done, which at that stage really wasn't very much. I started at the bottom at NW, nights and weekends, and the dreaded Sunday four to midnight shift. I remember looking at those fellows and thinking, gosh, how can anyone work at the same job on radio at the same radio station for 30 or 40 years as many of them had? Over time, I worked every conceivable shift, both as a newsreader and a reporter. CKNW was a powerhouse. Frosty Forrest ruled the mornings. Rick Honey in the afternoon. Great talk show hosts with names like Bannerman, Good, and Mayor. Our wonderful executive producer, Shirley Stocker, rode herd on that group like a den mother trying to contain an unrepentant, troublemaking troop of delinquents. When one of my radio heroes was hired in 1989... My life changed forever, for good and, well, not so good. Philip Till was to become a great mentor and even better friend. But my already finely honed perfectionist streak really ratcheted up when I started working with Till. By this time, I'd made the jump from the newsroom to the talk shows, something unheard of at NW in the past. My reinvention was not a smooth one. Due to my senseless perfectionism, I was my own worst critic, and boy, did I play that role very well. 
I heaped tons of pressure and unattainable expectations on my shoulders and eventually collapsed under the weight. A long-time battle with depression and anxiety was in full bloom, and finally I had to admit I was burned out. And I expected the worst. I went in and told my boss I needed to take time off. I thought, who would want a talk show host with depression and anxiety, having panic attacks on the air? I figured my career was over. But NW management, including Lou Del Gabo, Tom Plasteris, and Ian Konigsfest, had my back for the next seven months, the time I needed to recover. True to their word, I was back on the air and paired with Till on the afternoon show and had some of the greatest fun I've ever had in this business. I came back and I never looked back. To say that I'm blessed is an understatement. An amazing, patient, and loving wife, Kristen has been my rock, my anchor, my touchstone for almost 45 years. When we got married, she was a single mom with three kids. Later, we added a fourth. My love for each of them is profound, and I am proud of each of them beyond doubt. The same for the five grandchildren they've blessed us with. The love and respect I have for my work family is only slightly less profound. My boss, Larry Gifford, has allowed me to call the shots entirely on my retirement decision, and to be clear, the decision is all mine. I'm surrounded by the best team in radio. It's been an honor and a pleasure to watch and help guide the development of Nikki Reitmeyer into a first-class broadcaster, producer, and writer. Her work ethic and determination are a wonder. My technical producer, Greg Schott, deserves a medal of honor for having to put up with my apparent genetic inability to hit my out times on time. He sweat bullets as I've tried to pack five hours of programming into a four-and-a-half-hour space. With good humor, mostly, uh, he's always managed to make it work. He is a beauty. Victor Smith has only been with the show for a few months, but his intelligence and natural inquisitiveness will serve him well in the future. It's hard to find good producers, and he is definitely one of them. It's been an honor and a pleasure to call Gord MacDonald a friend and a colleague. He's an excellent journalist who I respect deeply. His on-air antics with me in the early morning hours have been better than a pot of coffee to get me going some mornings. We shall remain friends well past retirement. My thanks to a couple of solid pros and mainstays in our business. The wonderful weather guy, Mark Madriga, who has the toughest job in town. And Kim Larson, who's been handling our traffic with calm and professionalism that's been a treat to listen to. And finally... Certainly, and last but not least, this audience. A broadcaster couldn't ask for a more loyal, intelligent, informed, and just plain fun group of people to interact with, debate with, cry with, and sigh with. The true, honest, and real connections I've made with many of you are unforgettable. Thanks for allowing me into your lives all these years especially in these early morning hours when, let's face it, you pick your company pretty carefully. I want to say one more time how much I appreciated the love and support you offered me in my journey through mental health problems. Speaking up and out about depression and the stigma around mental health was a weight off my shoulders. Thank you for bearing some of that weight with your support. So that's it. I get to sleep in. I get to stay up past 6 o'clock and actually watch a hockey game, dine out with my wife Kristen, see more of the kids and grandkids, and just relax.
But fear not. This voice still works, and you'll hear me on NW and in other places still living that childhood dream and getting paid to talk. I head into the next phase surrounded by an incredible family, wonderful lifelong friends, and the hope that you've heard something you've liked over the years. I'm not a fan of goodbyes, so let's leave it at see you later, and I'll carry you in my heart forever. And so, for the last time around, my thanks to Nikki Reitmeyer, Victor Young, Greg Schott, Gordon McDonald, Mark Madriga, and Kim Larson. For everybody, I'm John McComb. All right, as John this morning, I'm I'm amazed that he was able to keep it together there during that. I thought that was a perfect sign off for John. And there were a lot of tears shed around CKNW today. This is a man who's had an incredible career. A lot of people owe him a lot of thanks. He's helped so many, including myself. So I want to say thank you again, John, for all your help. This is a guy who's had a tremendous talent and integrity. And he'll be badly missed. He's a guy who showed a lot of courage over the years, taking on some incredible topics. You heard him talking about his mental health and the passions that he had there. But I always remember him digging into the BC Rail story, the money laundering scandals we've seen here in British Columbia over the last few years. The good news is you'll still continue to hear his voice, as he said there. But I think for most people, even though they're shedding some tears, I think a lot of people are feeling real happy for John. Enjoy your retirement, John. That was awesome this morning.